today we have Rashad Moore, uh, entrepreneur and investor. Uh, we're here in D.C. Uh, what's up, Rashad? Hey, how you doing? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, private tech investing. Oh, man. So how far back do you want to go? Uh, let's go back to high school. High school? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, so I was 5'6". Um, I'm about 6'3 now. So uh, when you're 5'6 five, five, and you're a computer nerd, uh, you tend to get stuffed in a lot of lockers um, at school. So uh, if you man, you look like Hakeem Olajuwon. <laughs> you were getting stuffed in the lockers. I was definitely getting stuffed in stuck in lockers. I mean, but, you know, because I was a nerd, man. I was, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I was the type of kid growing up that I, I don't know if you remember. You you might be in a, the age of where you could go into a bookstore and you can buy programs like books of programs. Like you go to Walden Books or, you know, I don't even think Barnes and Nobles was around then. And you get a bunch of you get a book. It's about 200 pages and you take it home at night and it just has lines of code. And I would just sit there and type them in into this uh, this little TI-99 computer that my mom bought me. Um, I was probably about maybe 10, 11 or 12. And that was that's what I did, you know, and uh, that's how I learned how to develop. Um, that's where my interest in technology came from. And so I just probably did that until all the way through college. And to be quite frank, I never really stopped to this day. When you um, see that you were throwing in lockers, are you seeing that folks would bully you because of your geekness? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I you mean, know, give me some examples. Uh, of like, how, how, how much torture did you experience? Uh, and was it primarily from black folks? It was. Well, so I grew up in a black neighborhood. Right. Yeah. So a black working class neighborhood. So it was all black. I mean, I only only grew up around black. So people, brother was so. like, man, this guy's in there. He's a nerd. Uh, he's he, he's yeah. in computers. He must, you know, he's something's wrong with him. He's weird. Yeah. You know, you know, no, you know, no girls. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you yeah. know, you know, not really into girls, you know, yeah. and even if I was, I had no game. So it was just like, yeah, you're, that's, ju you're just a nerd and you love computers. Absolutely. Yeah. That was that was that was my life. And uh, yeah. And so, I mean, I just did that forever since uh, easy. Oh, gosh, I remember it's probably about I was probably about 10 years old when I first started. My dad brought home a computer. He was a, an accountant. Um, and uh, at the oil company in, uh, in Oklahoma, you can, you can imagine. Uh, he brought home a computer, and it was basic programming. So he, he used to have to write basic programs and these punch cards and all that good stuff. And so uh, I was like, hey, what's this? And then, you know, he showed me a few things, and, uh, and it just kind of, kind of went on from there, and I just kept uh, doing it. But, yeah, no, it was – yeah, you can imagine, man, the football team, you know, everyone was, was – you know, In our community, do you think getting picked on because you're into math and science and computers – do you think that's a black thing or there's no real difference, meaning that the white geeks are getting uh, picked on, too? So there's no there's not a big cultural uh, you know, uh, delta. Man, that's a good question, man. I you know, I don't know, because to be quite frank, I never grew up. I didn't grow up around a lot of white people. Um, so, you know, I don't know what the white nerd experience is but if i'm watching tv it seems like it's probably the same i think it might be pronounced in in the black community just yeah. because of uh yeah. our sense of male machismo and these sort of these sort of uh images or, or or stereotypes that i think that we all kind of have to try to live up to right that are sort of foisted upon us by just external entities if you will right so yeah, I definitely think it's probably pronounced, but you yeah, know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't say either way. Yeah, but uh, but you know, we don't have any data to, to back it up. But if we had to guess, there's a higher frequency of harsh attacks and bullying on 
black in computer geek, black in math geek, uh, black in you're really into serious things as a kid. Uh, I do think that there's a material cultural delta. Just and, and part of that is just, hey, we're not seeing that's not cool, uh, meaning that our our frequency of cool is, is is really messed up. Yeah, our sense of what's our sense you know, of what's, what's cool. cool yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. Our, our sense of style is not really in the. But I think that's that might be changing though. I think uh, you know, I think I think technology as it's become more pervasive is starting to it's starting to become cool with you know with the jocks with a whole Jay Z's you know, investing, Nas is investing exactly into tech. Yo, yeah. absolutely, yeah. and rappers are rapping about tech, and you know, it's it's a whole you know it's a whole thing. So I mean. Yeah, I think I think it's probably hopefully it's gotten a little better. I mean, with my kids, you know, I man, I send them to I send them to nerdy schools, man. I, I specifically picked schools where the kids were nerdy because I wanted them. You're to... You're not getting extra points for being a thug and a kid. Exactly. You want to get in that environment. Exactly. Exactly. So I was like, all right, well, what's the nerdiest school I can send my kids to? And so I, my oldest is eight, so that's where I send them. And uh, yeah, and all their friends are kind of kind of. Kind of quirky, you know, a little, uh, little geeky with air quotes, you know, around and uh, and I think uh, suits me just fine. But yeah, but you're right. Growing up, it was uh, it was definitely a you lot were of uh, bullied. So take us further well, in your story. Well, so okay, but bully is a strong word because I mean you know, I get bullying, but it was like I don't know. When we grew up, it was like maybe I guess technically it was bullying, but like you know it was like you know you played the dozens, you know that was just part of the culture. So you know. Definitely, as of today's standards, bullying. But, you know, I don't really feel like, you know, I was, like, emotionally scarred or yes. it was something that was out of the norm. You, you know traumatized. What I mean? Yeah, I definitely. definitely <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. Definitely wasn't traumatized. Yeah. And it feels good. Now that you got Facebook, I can look back and I'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, see. That's they, how they, it usually turns out, Yeah, right? they're still in, yeah. you, know, you know, they're still in uh, wherever and uh, doing whatever. And uh, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah. Can't complain, man. Life. I'm blessed. Life yeah. life turned out well, but uh, but yeah. So uh, went to uh, went to high school. Um, still a nerd. Um, went to Oklahoma State. Um, studied electrical engineering. Started to find my tribe, um, and then uh, I met my wife. Um, so I went to Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. She went to Oklahoma University in uh, in Norman, Oklahoma. Probably about 60, 70, 80 miles away. Um, we met toward, I met during her last year of school. So we started in the same year, 93, out of college or out of high school. She graduated a year before I did because she's much smarter. Um, and then, uh, so she's got a lot of family here in D.C. And uh, so we, she moved up here. Still my girlfriend. I was like, all right, you know, we so, spent a year uh, apart. You met her in college. Met her in college. State. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because you remember I had no game because I'm still a nerd, right? And uh, she was the first person to give me her phone number. So I just said, all right, well, we go together. She was nah. smart. Like, man, I'm getting with a geek. Like, forget all this, forget all this short-term stuff, man. I, that long-term play is getting with a geek. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think, you know, you, you, you talk about it. But uh, I, I've had plenty of conversations in high school with, with, uh, with, with women, black women, who are like, hey, look, this is, my senior, this is my senior year of school. I mean, it was cool to date, you know, the football, the baseball players, you know, the cool guys, you know. But they're like, yeah, you know, they start looking at, like, job prospects at some point. You start getting, like, real serious about, like, okay, the future, if you will, right? And who do you want to be with, right? You know, I'm not saying, you know, I've got plenty of friends who are football players, and they are awesome people and awesome fathers, awesome, you know. Uh, from a career standpoint, but you know, it's just one of those things that, yeah, I think people start to get more serious yeah. toward the end of college, which is, I think, the purpose of college as well. So, and do you think there's any racial disparity there uh, hmm. in terms of how males are 
evaluated at the college age in terms of, hey, maybe this community puts a lot more weight on swagger uh, than another community who's like, hey, is this guy going to be a good husband, a good, you know, kind of partner long term? You know, do do you? I don't know. See, that's a good one because, uh, I mean, you know, you can. It's a good question. I don't know if I, I don't know if I think there's much of a difference because it because you're also talking about a small subset of the world anyway. You're talking about college educated people, yeah. right? So if you say okay, everyone who is in the small minority of people who are college educated, because we gotta remember it's a big world out here. Uh, you know, I think in the beginning, I think most of like okay, if I look at my college experience, right? Most of the most of the most of all the women were just like, I mean, you're like just fresh out of high school, you know, you know first taste of freedom it's like everyone is just kind of like doing whatever right but i think i definitely know that as as you get older and you try to mature from that time when you're 18 to when you're 22 i think i think everyone got real serious you know because at at the end of the day it's like look i've got to i've got to do something with my life and so what i will say is that uh i don't think there were there were girls that i could have dated uh as a senior after having you know, because I was pretty good in high school. You know, I was uh, on national uh, boards at you know at the, the National Society of Black Engineers. You know, I was you know I was I was doing pretty well, right? Uh, you know, but when I first came in, it was kind of like, eh, who's this Rashad nerd guy who's always in the computer lab? Yeah. Um, so you know, um, you know, even though I didn't have a whole lot of game, you know, it was like you could definitely tell as I got if I started to achieve in college. Then, you know, a lot of the sisters came around. They were like, hey, who's this Rashad? You know, how you doing? You know, I started getting, you know, dates, hence my wife. Uh, and then so we met um, and she moved up here to uh, to D.C. And she's got a lot of family here. She's originally from Jamaica. Um, and I was I had a decision to make. It was my last year in college. And I was like, you know, I really like her. I really love her. And so I decided to move up. And it's been the best decision I've made because. I love Oklahoma. I mean, the people are awesome. I've got tons of family there, but just the opportunities that are here in DC are just like head and shoulders above what I could ever expect to. Do you think that it's fair to say that cultures and communities, cultures and communities um, that are more anti-geek pre-21, those cultures and communities will be more in trouble? Oh, absolutely. You think that's a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you gotta you gotta we have to build as black people, as people of color, we've gotta start to instill a in value education like very, very early, right? And you know, and I know we don't have a lot of means as a people, right? And so I'm not saying, you know, you know, you know, there are reasons why, you know, we have Southeast, you have slums and we have Southeast DC and we have North Philly and, you know, Baltimore, man, that place is Baltimore, you know, East Baltimore, what have you, right? There's reasons for that, 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 yeah. that are just, you know, that, that aren't our fault. Right. But at the same time, it's one of those things where it's like, I think, I think we can, we can, we can do better in advocating for ourselves with respect to educating our children and educating um, even our adults, if you will. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like that's going to be key if we have a plan to to do anything uh, and, and, and get out of our circumstances. So. But, yeah, you, I, I agree. Yeah. With you 100%. So yeah. in Baltimore, I was driving through the hood um, the other day <laughs> nice and uh, I, I got lost 
And, uh, you know, I've, I've been to Hoods. Uh, I lived in Harlem. You know, I, I lived in uh, Watts, uh, Linwood. Uh, uh, I've been in a lot of Hoods, south side of Chicago. But when I was driving through Baltimore, and it's not the first time I've been there, but this time, I was like, man, this looked like fucking Vietnam or, or Baptist or something. Man. It's, it is. It's, it's yeah. on another level. Yeah, so yeah. I was when I was when I was going to Johns Hopkins uh, on campus. I would commute from uh, Reston, Virginia, all the way over to uh, to Baltimore, um, probably about an hour and a half or so. And yeah, I mean, Johns Hopkins is you know hood adjacent. It's right there in the hood. They're pretty much buying up all the hood, but that's a different story. Um, but no, I mean, it is. Uh, it's definitely. It's up there. It's yeah. It's yeah. definitely. In but terms I of mean, hood frequency. Baltimore yeah. is like man. It's, it's got. It's got. A, it's, it's high on the megahertz. It's got lots of gigahertz. Um, but I mean, it is. It kind of is what it is, and I think that it's. It's just that. There's a reason for that. Yeah, for right? sure. You know, and like I said, a lot of us, it, it's it's systemic, and you know, it's it's you know, if you think of Freddie Gray, that you know, who got who got murdered, um, in Baltimore, it's just like, I mean, you got it's systemic. It's the even though we run like black people run Baltimore, like well, that's yeah, a, yeah, that's a black run city, but yet it's still systematically racist. Yeah. Do you see where I'm coming from? So yeah, I don't you got to, black faces, but it's all kind of the same system. It's all yeah. the same system. Yeah. And I don't know how to fix that. And uh, hopefully we can find some entrepreneurs that can that can help fix that. Yeah. But, uh, all right. So continue on your story. Oh, so uh, so once I moved up here, um, I got a, uh, a job as a software engineer at a small startup called Localize. Um, I was originally supposed to go work for Anderson Consulting, which is called Accenture now. Um, but I moved up. And this was during the tech boom, right? So this is a tech boom of 2000 or 1999, back when Netscape and you know these, you know the 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 precursor Amazon, Google, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was just enamored. I was like, oh man, it was and it was it was huge. That was a huge tech scene uh, over in DC. I mean, you got to think AOL was there, all the telcos were there. I mean, it was it was a lot of wealth being generated. And so uh, I joined the startup. Um, there were six of us. Um, we hired a couple more people. We then sold that to AOL. Um, I made a total of two thousand dollars, and you know we got bought for you know many many millions. But uh, you know then that's how I learned about equity, and uh, and how uh, and and how that works, stock options, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I was like, okay, so worked at AOL for a little bit and um, for about a year. Um, loved it. Um, and they but- were based in Virginia. At that time, they were based in Virginia. Um, I did like working there for a couple of reasons. I, I liked working there, but then you know I'm not a big company guy, so you know it got it got real old real quick. Um, but I liked working there because the developers there, the the talent. Was did you there. see a lot was, of politics from an engineering perspective? Uh, yeah, I was only there for a year, a little bit. Mostly, what I saw was was uh, sort of complacency, to be quite frank. Because if you remember, AOL was like at this point in 1999, 2000 when we bought, it. it was at the it was at its height. And then once you, you got started, Mel. yeah, exactly. Uh, you know they were doing movies about yeah. it. You know the whole yeah. Night. And there was just a lot of really smart people, really talented people who were just waiting to vest. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. 
For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Right. And if you, those who don't know what that means, it's like, hey, look, they started AOL, you know, when it was like maybe halfway or when it first started, they might have 10, 20 million dollars worth of unvested stock options. So at that point, it's kind of like they just want to they just want to stay there long enough not to get fired until their options vest and they can pull the ripcord and they can leave. Right. And so uh, so rest invest. You, you heard of that term? Rest invest? I've not heard yeah, of that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds, yeah, that sounds exactly like it. So like when big companies get too big, it's kind of like, like, man, once I invest my stuff, man, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. And I don't blame them. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like there were secretaries that were, you know, four or five million dollars in stock options. And I'm like, wow, okay. The parking lot was really awesome. You know, lots of uh, Lamborghinis, Ferraris, et cetera, et cetera. Surprising of the, surprising, you know, the level of consumerism um, that, you know, because it wasn't a majority, it wasn't wasn't a black company, right? And so sometimes we get tagged with that sort of materialistic, you know, moniker. I think it's just rich people in general, you know. But, uh, but yeah, so um, worked at AOL, and uh, but then we all got laid off at AOL. So they bought our company for so many million and then they laid us all off during the tag bust. Um, and then I was like, all right, well, what do I want to do with my life? So um, I uh, went back to grad school because what I did learn at AOL is that I learned what world class developers look like. Right. Yeah. Um, world. So remember, I'm a developer. So I'm like a software engineer. Like I want to be the best. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I'd never seen the best. And so I was like, okay, these guys are, and these gals are really, really good, right? And so I started taking a look at, okay, well, where did I, where did I not match up, right? And so I just figured that out. That's where I went to Johns Hopkins, studied computer science, uh, focused on artificial intelligence. Um, uh, this is a graduate program? This is a, yeah, graduate. So it's a master's in computer science. Um, and then I was working at MITRE Corporation, which is a research and development company. Um, so I was doing research there and I was just like, I was like, okay, I'm just going to dedicate myself to getting, to getting as good as I can get at this, at what I do. Right. Which is software engineering or or technology. And, uh, and so that's what I did. So I probably spent the next 10 years just, uh, you know, every day. Remember when I was eight years old, I'd just come home and, and, and copy lines of code. I would come home and I would just write code. I would just write software. Um, and then, um, I did that work today, not AOL, but MITRE for about four years. Um, got two graduate degrees at Hopkins. Um, and I was like, Hey, I want to start to do something more entrepreneurial because I've always been an entrepreneur. And then, uh, went to work for a small defense contracting company. There was about four of us there. Um, a year later I was like, Hey, look, I've got to start my own thing. How did you find them or they find you? It's through a mutual friend, just kind of, uh, you know, out in Northern Virginia, just, you know, a friend of a friend said, Hey, I've got a buddy that's starting a defense contracting company, you know, he's looking for people. And I was like, Hey, I'm looking, I'm ready to leave MITRE. I want to make more money. Um, (laughs) cause you know, researchers don't get paid as much as I thought they might have. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then I learned, uh, you know, I learned how defense contracting worked, um, at, uh, at, uh, at the next company, clear solutions. And then I was like, Hey, look, I can do this. And, uh, so I, uh, about a year after that, I said, all right, I, started a company and I just went and I just created a couple of PowerPoint presentations and I went down, I went to General Dynamics, I went to Booz Allen, I went to North of Grumman, like everybody I could even think I was just talking to anyone who would talk to me. Um, and then, uh, and I was working in the intelligence field. So, um, you know, I was good at what I did. Um, and I was in the intelligence field. So, you know, that, uh, makes it a little easier 
to uh, to find work because they're always looking for good people. Define for our audience, you're in the intelligence field. Um, uh, it's just that fact that, hey, I'm doing stuff for agencies. Uh, yeah. yeah. Think yeah. three-letter organizations, you know, yeah. without getting too, because I still, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't don't get be too, precise. Yeah, yeah. But so, you know, you know, it's like my buddy, you know, uh, you know yeah. you've seen my Jack buddy, Ryan, right? Yeah. You've yeah, seen yeah. Jack Ryan. You've seen uh, those. I mean, it's, well, I have a buddy. People, I spent a year at Syracuse University College of Law and uh, one of my good friends, when he graduated, uh, he just dropped off. A lot of us, about we, that. We, we know, we, we, we couldn't communicate with him and, to this day, he's super ambiguous about what government entity or what he does, but we kind of, you know, we've concluded, uh, like, where he works. But he can never <laughs> just tell us, like, what's up. But anyways, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, and, and likewise, the same. I try not to, uh, you know, you just, can't, I work for You can't for the share too much yet. But, uh, but now we build, uh, you know, so that's, and so that's what Software Theory did. I finally yeah. got the first contract with Northrop Grumman. Um, and that was because the uh, the customer that I used to work for, that I was actually working for at the time, the he, he really liked what I was doing. And when I told him I was going to go work on this other contract, he was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I'll hook you up with a contract. And so he called Northrop Grumman um, and said, hey, I really need this guy. Northrop Grumman called me like two or three hours later, said, hey, we've got a contract for you. And the next day I was on a contract. Two weeks later, gave, I gave two weeks notice. Two weeks later, I was I was in business. Okay, and, nice. Uh, and then I was like, okay. So well, you what got do your I do? own contract. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, we were subbing. We were subbing through through Northrop Grumman because in this space, the big guys, the big boys, your Northrop Grumman's, your Booz Allen's, you know, those folks, they suck up all the work, but they need people to to help fill in yeah. the gaps, right? So I'm a so we filled in all the gaps, right? So um, so Software Theoretic is the name of the company that that I started. Um, that was the origin of it. That was 2007. Um, you know, just worked really hard, talked to as many people as I could, just recruited as many people as I could, got on as many contracts as I could. And anyone who would listen to me, I just sat down and told them, Hey, this is software theoretic. This is how we work. This is what we do. This is why we're the best. No one's ever going to beat. you know, you know, if this company is offering you this, I promise you we can do better. Like we just, we just can't lose, you know, and that's sort of that, you know, sort of that sort of you know, hustle and mentality that we grew up with and, and which I think is a good thing, right? You know, um, it's just like, you know, Jay-Z, I cannot lose, right? Just yeah. that's just that sort of mentality is just like, hey, I've, I've got to win and whatever I got to do to win, that's what we're going to do. Right? So you just have a dream, uh, a vision, and you just start pitching to uh, the groups out here that do contracting work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you got to provide value, right? Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, um, why would... Booz Allen bring you on as a sub versus, you know, the other 100 or other thousands of people who are pitching as well. Right. So um, so, you know, being good at what we did was uh, was a plus. Right. You know, so when you. When you were walking through the halls of these government organizations um, and, you know, someone was from Software Theoretic, it was it was always a positive response. Right. Because we were just we were just going to be better. When you're dealing with the intelligence community in the United States, I got to think folks in our community, they're like, man, that Rashad, you get some voices that may be like, man, that Rashad, he's connected to intelligence agencies and the government. He's hot. 
you know, I'm skeptical of him. I, have you ever encountered any of that? No, nah, not really. Yeah, not really. Um, because that's really not. That's culture kind of out here. Like, yeah, a lot of people are doing contract and, work and stuff in like DC, that. In D.C., that's just kind of yeah. like everyone. Your next-door neighbor is working for the same people. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I definitely can understand that because, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to speak for, you know, any particular agency. But, you know, there's a lot of. There's a lot of uh, very credible theories about, you know, agencies and, you know, the black community and yada, 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 you know, that goes back way back. But this is what I will say, though, that um, there are a lot of people in a lot of these agencies that are good, hardworking folks that also put their lives on the line for us. Right. Um, And the whole purpose is that we stop is that if we do our jobs, if we have if we build the right technology, then we can save lives, right? We can stop wars, you know, we don't have to go to war, you know, that type of thing. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I can definitely see that in the black community that some people would be uh, kind of skeptical, but, you know. You find a partner and what happens next? Partner as in what? In terms of subcontracting work. Yeah, yeah. so what happens? Yeah, so, uh, so basically the way it works is, um, you know, they'll, they being uh, Booz Allen, they'll pitch these really large uh, contracts, you know, so there might be, like the, like the one contract, my biggest contract, there's like 1,800 people on it. Um, and so, you know, there's several primes and they'll need software engineers, they'll need testers, they'll need uh, program managers to build certain, you know, applications and products and things like that. And then so our goal is to uh, go out and find the best, the best software engineers in the world, the best testers, the best IT professionals, and then compete on uh, compete on skills and price. And um, just for example, we were the largest. So General Dynamics, who was the prime on this one contract, um, they had about probably about 70 or 80 different subcontractors. Um, you know, some large companies like uh, BAE, I think, was a subcontractor to them. Um, we were GD's largest or third largest subcontractor just on that contract period of about 1800 people. So, you know, it was just, we just, we just went out and competed and, um, and yeah. And so that's just, you know, and that's just how that kind of works. And of course there were other types of government contracting that people can get into that are, um, that are, that require less clearances and things like that. But I think at the end of the day, you still have to have that drive. And how did that work in terms of security clearances? Like, what level did you need to go up to? And can you explain that yeah, for the audience? You need, you need to go all the way. You need to go all the way up. <laughs> <laughs> all the way up. Um, yeah, yeah, so I was, when I was working at MITRE, I was just a, it's an interesting story how, how kind of fate and luck kind of yeah. intertwine and work. I was working at MITRE, and I was a researcher. And uh, I was building, uh, I was building uh, genetic, genetic uh, algorithm models, right? Yeah. Or building genetic algorithms to sort of solve problems for, you know, this group on site, right? On, at the customer site. And I didn't really know, because I wasn't cleared at the time. I didn't really know what they were doing with it. I was just like, okay, I need to build this. And so I was building it. And then they were like, hey, you want to get a clearance and, you know, go work on site and actually see what you guys are, you know, what we're using your stuff for. And I was like, yeah, sure. So you fill out all the paperwork and you're like, all right, you fill this paperwork. It's like a stack of paperwork, you know, 40, 50 pages. And they just look at everything in your life, um, you know, everywhere you live, you know, all your family, your friends. They look at all of that. The sister who stole a pair of shoes or the brother breaking into an amusement park when he was a teenager. Does that disqualify you for mm. all the way up? No, not really. You'd not be surprised. Really. Yeah. You'd be surprised yeah. what you can get away. Uh, as long as you're not. I got smoking. caught with a sack of weed. Let's say someone 
got caught with a sack of weed when they were 17. Nah, can they go all the way up? Yeah, yeah, you can go all the way up with that. That's not going to that's not going to disqualify you. Uh if you got caught with a sack of weed last week, then that would that would <laughs> yeah. disqualify you. <laughs> uh but yeah. no, you got to think about it, right? So yeah. think think about it like right, there are people, you know, so let's just say white guys, right? That and, and you know that are like, you know, in their 50s now, right? They grew up in the 60s, the 70s, right? So maybe either 60 years old at this point. Um, I mean, they get clearances, right? And you can imagine what the 60s and 70s were like, right? And so as long as you're not doing it now, you're, you're good to go all the way up. You just have to find someone to, uh, to sponsor. And around here, that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward. But it takes about a year. Okay, got um, it. They hook you up to polygraph uh, machines. So the level of uh, clearance you need, are you at the same level like a Secret Service? You know, or a little bit know. different? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know. Probably, uh, I mean, if someone felt I had the need to know, which, to be quite frank, I do very mundane things at, at these agencies. So yeah. I actually make it a specific, I actually make it a specific effort not to know anything. I just build, I just build software. You get your partner, and what, what happens next? Uh, you just, you show up to work, and you find people, you convince people to come to your company and, uh, and, and show up to work as well. And it's all time and materials. For your company, are you the founder or do you have a team, a co-founder? So, for Software Theoretic, uh, I was a CEO, um, founder. Um, so, yeah, that was just me. But we sold it about three years ago um, to a uh, private equity-backed uh, So, let's talk, yeah, let's talk about oh, building it up before you sell it. Okay. Uh, so, so, like, the growth trajectory and, and kind of what went on there? Uh, yeah, you know, it's just, um, you know, you grow it. So, we probably got to about um, maybe 25, 30 people, you know, that's six, seven, eight million a year or something like that. Okay. Um, decent margins, you know, not like SaaS, enterprise SaaS product margins. But, uh, but yeah, so you just kind of grow it. And it's just more, it's just a recruiting game. It's because there is no unemployment line for clear developers. So you're stealing them from somewhere. Yeah. So if you if you're making 120,000, 130,000, 140,000 at General Dynamics and Lil Rashad comes up to you and says, "Hey, you want to come work at my company doing much the same thing? I've got to have I've got to I've got to have a better opportunity for you, right? So yeah. I'm either going to be more money, more benefits, it's got to be a better work culture, a better work environment." And, uh, you know, I think we provided all of those. Right. So yeah. we were voted Washingtonian, one of Washingtonians, 50 best places to work at um, because culture was very important to uh, to me. How's the uh, transition where my engineering game is tight, but now I have to step into another role as a boss, as a CEO, as a manager? Uh, how is that transition? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, because. Uh, you know, when I started Software Theoretic, I was a software engineer. Like, yeah. I wasn't like VP of General Dynamics and, you know, and I had all this experience, you know, leading people, managing people in the real world, if you will. Right. But um, but I mean, back since college, man, I'll tell you, man, I started studying leadership in college. So when I got out of high school and then I moved, transitioned to college, that was a pretty tough transition because, you know, I was getting like crazy great. I was getting really good grades. Um, in high school and, you know, doing great in the AP tests and, you know, I had all this, these credits going into high school, going to college. And, you know, I hit a wall around sophomore year because although I was smart and I can get good grades in high school, I didn't really know how to study. Right. Like I didn't know how to, 
to process all of this new information that was coming to me like super, super fast. So I hit this wall and so I had to really sort of figure out how to learn, right? So I really practiced learning how to learn. And part of that was I also started getting involved with the National Society of Black Engineers um, at the local level and then at the regional level. So I would have, um, so when I was in college, and this is what I was kind of a, referring to back earlier, where I was like, okay, I started to achieve things in, in college, yeah. right? It was like, okay, so, you know, I chose the National Society of Black Engineers to get really involved with, right? And it's been the best thing that ever happened to me. And so, uh, you know, I was on the, on, the, on the chapter board when I was a sophomore, and then I got on the regional board where I had like, you know, I was in Texas, it was like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, it was like, like 10 states where I had other, you know, I was, a, I was a geek, remember? So I was a telecom chair, the telecommunications chair, and this is like being the telecommunications chair when the internet was being invented, right? So it was like, okay, we were all just getting email addresses, the World Wide Web became a thing. So it was like, okay, I came up in, you know, sort of this National Society of Black Engineers leadership structure, right? Sort of leading, bringing the, the National Society of Black Engineers onto the web and, and really being able to leverage these new technologies you know, region-wide first. So you're developing uh, operational management skills absolutely. outside of coding and developing absolutely. with this organization. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so that's what we do at National Life Black Engineers, we build leaders, right? Yeah. And then so then I ran, you had a campaign and all that good stuff uh, for the National Telecom Chair, and so I was that. Um, and so I had, like, the whole nation, and it was about, I don't know, about a hundred chapters or so, if not, if not more, um, someone will, someone will fact check me in the comments or something. But, uh, but yeah, I had a whole, uh, I had a whole, what we call the Nesby net or the, the, the net G's, um, which is about 40 or 50, uh, you know, black computer scientists, engineers that, uh, that formed my sort of committee. So, so I really, really started studying leadership then. And, you know, and so some of my contemporaries were like, you know, Randall Pinkett, you've heard of him. Um, you know, S. Gordon Moore, you know, uh, tons of tons of like people that I look at now, Adrian Mitchell, who I think um, he was a McKinsey and now he's a CEO of uh, Crate and Barrel, I believe. Right. So, you know, he was my region five chair when we were on the board together. So, you know, I really studied and just looked around at all of this black excellence and all of these black leaders. And I just studied them. Right. And I read books, John Maxwell, uh, you know, all of them. Right. And then so it was sort of a natural transition to to leadership because, you know, I've just been practicing and I failed a lot in college and I failed a lot, you know, in a lot of these sort of outside organizations with respect to leadership. And uh, and then so when it became time to 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 make that transition into being someone's boss, responsible for someone's mortgage payment and their and their kids tuition and all that good stuff. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty natural, but I, I put in the work beforehand though. So. Uh, so before you sold your company, I imagine you had to terminate folks. Nah, nah, what no, no, you, you didn't have no, to terminate. You no, just no, cause that's because the people, the people yeah. are the, are, are the, are the goods. So and, we're time and material. So we are a revenue stream. So anyone who left was like, Oh man, you know, yeah. uh, that's what, so we, you didn't have to encounter that problem. No, like, no, yeah. no, 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 okay. no, 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 That was, yeah. And, and then plus on top of that, I mean, I wouldn't have sold to anyone where I, cause I believe in people and I believe that, you know, we ha we have to take care of people. So I wouldn't have even sold it if it was going to be a big bloodletting or something like that. So, you know, it's just, but you, you never know. had performance problems on a 30 member team. Meaning like, hey, it got to the point where 
dude, if you don't are, you know, you don't step it up, man, you got to go. Uh, not at software theoretic. Um, because we kind of, we kind of recruit. We, you got the recruiting. So yeah, right. we screen for that. Yeah. We re, we screen, we really did screen for that. Um, and, uh, so, so we've been fortunate. I'm not yeah. saying that, you know, in other startups and things like that, that that's not the case. Um, but, but we would, I would say we were blessed and fortunate that we didn't have a, a lot of, okay, got of those and issues. When it was time where you thought about selling your company, was it, uh, kind of folks coming to you or was it like hey it's time to push the cash out ah man it was uh oh man so when you started did you hire a banker um no no bankers are expensive too yeah um no um so or in this this case they'll call it a um i believe a a business broker business broker sometimes they call them investment bankers etc etc um no it was so once you start getting a company of a certain size 20 25 people or so uh, those folks come looking for you. Um, and yeah, sometimes, but, uh, I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole DC is his whole economic engine that is just ridiculously big. And to be quite frank, it's even bigger than Silicon Valley. Right. So we're talking about like, you look at Andreessen Horowitz or some of the, the biggest venture capital funds that are out there are like a couple billion, maybe 10 billion. Right. Yeah. There are, there are private equity firms like there. I can see them right here across the bridge, right? Yeah. That are doing hundreds of billions of dollars in funds in private equity, and they're buying companies like uh, like like CSRA, and then CRSRA buys a bunch of companies, and then those companies buy a bunch of companies like my company, and it just all kind of it's just like they vacuum it all up. A lot of slush funds out here. There's a ton of there's a ton of wealth. <laughs> a lot there's of money of, out here. A in lot DC. of money. Absolutely. The hoods may look like. You know, Vietnam War are uh, are Afghanistan, but there's a lot of money out in DC. There's in the a, DC area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you go to yes, yes, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's but that and that's a different you know that's a different story where where we are. It's uh, it's it's not it's not a bad living, but uh, but no, it's a ton of money out here, and there's a ton of opportunities, and and I didn't really even know about that until until we until we got offers to be bought. You start to learn about okay, who the private equity so, firms are. So, how did are. the inquiries kind of come in? How do they knock on the door like, "Hey, are you are you open to uh, being acquired?" How does that uh, develop for you? It's just it's just more like uh, you're not buying someone's company. You don't buy someone's company via like some kind of drip campaign or something like that, right? It's just like more social. It's like okay, I know John. And Let's go know, to John dinner. Is, yeah, yeah, John is. You know, he works for some. He works with some small boutique investment banking firm, and in, and in deals my size, it's like it's like more of the boutiques, right? Yeah. Um, that you'll that you'll find, and they'll. So it's like, kind of informal, right? Yeah, it's very informal. So yeah, the like way, just, yeah, yeah, the way we got bought was um, so uh, Jay, a guy named Jay, he had a company roughly about the same size, I mean, slightly bigger. Um, he was actively looking for someone to buy his company, right? And uh, and we. You know, you got to build for you got to have friends in this space. So uh, he was a real good, uh, a real good colleague, and we would work together on a lot of things. And so, um, so he found a company that was backed by a private equity firm uh, to buy his company. And then he was like, "Hey, Rashad, you know, you know, for about a year or two, he's like, hey, you know, it's kind of, kind of talking." And then I was like, you know, I was like, I was making good money, and I was like, man, you know, I'm having fun. This is awesome. And then, um, you know, I turned forty, so I'm forty three now. Um, and I was like, you know what? Um, 
you know, I've done this for about eight years and I was like, I wanted to do something different from the standpoint. I absolutely love being running software theoretical figures of blessing. Everyone who has ever worked there, I just, just adore uh, tremendously and have the utmost respect for. But it was one of those things where it's like as, as a creative, cause I'm a creative, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a creative, I build things. I wanted to build something different. I didn't know what that thing was, but I was like, all right, I needed to make room in my life for, for whatever that thing, whatever that next thing was going to be. And if you run, the, if you own a company, the only way is to, is to sell it. Right. And so, uh, so then I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm about 40. I started to think about, you know, I was talking about my dad, he passed away when he was 60. So I was like, all right, well, you know, I don't want to stop at 60, but like, let's just say I only get 60 years. Right. Just like my dad. Right. Then I'm like, okay, well, like, what do I, what, how would I like to leave the world? Right. Like what contributions can I make that will make the world a little better place than than when I arrived. Right. And so I was like, all right. So in 40, um, went ahead, decided to sell the company, um, you know, just talk to the wife and just you, you know, a, kind of a lifestyle change and you wanted to do more good. Yeah. Sounds like. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I wanted to and I wanted to be able to see, you know, like what else was out there in the world. And so, uh, and so, yeah, so we sold it. I worked at the company uh, for a year, as I told him I would. Uh, and then I rolled off into the sunset and uh, took about a nine-month sabbatical. Yeah, so you're one of the, the, the few folks um, that have an exit that look like us, where you, you sold your business. Uh, it sounds like it wasn't just about the performance of the business, meaning that you guys were generating a profit, you guys are getting, you know, you, you, you're doing the work, you're, you're growing your company, but that's just part of it. It sounds like, hey, a lot was riding on uh, your reputation, your networking, mm -hmm. uh, your social circles, how you interact right. with people. That was a big component of getting a deal done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's who you know and, uh, and, and making... And making intentional investments in building authentic relationships with people around you and people you that might not look and like the, you. And the relationships that really helped you to get to the point where you, you, you complete a deal, you sell your business, are those relationships mostly with white folks, meaning that you need to be able to, <laughs> in your case, you need yeah. to be able to yeah. interact uh, kind of in a comfortable sure. way. Absolutely. With, with with white folks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Like that that was and, a big piece of it. Yeah, yeah, and like, you be and and to some people listen to it it sounds weird to say, "Oh, you got to learn how to act around white people." But I mean, it's it's true, right? It's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if you are a person that grew up in an all-black community, uh, went to all black high schools, went to PWI or predominantly white institutions uh, for uh, for college, um, but then you come to DC, and to be quite frank, there's a lot of us, a lot of black people doing really well. And that was one of the reasons I like coming here is because I wasn't the first black person in a boardroom. And typically I wasn't the only one. Yeah. And that was that was very comforting. Right. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I think I think I think that's, that's yeah, you just have to be able to work with all different types of people. And, and you weren't changing up like stanley with the pink shirt on friday meaning when you're when you're when you're networking and you're building these important relationships that sure. could have a future payoff um are there any noticeable change-ups of course so, so yeah. you do go stanley 
in oh, some cases. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, but it's I'm, one of those things yeah, where it's you're like self-aware. If I'm at home, yeah, uh, or around my my boys and, and you know my Are friends. But I'm just yeah, saying, let's say difference. from a professional perspective. So let's say uh, you're doing deals with black CEOs, professionals, and you're deal, you're you're doing deals with white professionals and CEOs. Uh, you do you're self aware enough to know that you go kind of Stanley in those other circles. Yeah, okay. of course, of course. Yeah. And to be quite frank, when you when you and a lot of times when you're working with other black professionals, it's like you want to be even more Stanley because I mean sometimes you just kind of never know. We we as in black people sometimes don't trust us as much as we trust others. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you see where I'm coming from? And so, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we will we'll use the Queen's English and, you know, I'll talk properly if I'm giving a presentation, you know. What's up, Stanley? Exactly. I'll put my suit on, even though I hate wearing suits. I've got like two suits, but uh, when I need to, I'll put my suit on and tie and, and uh, we'll go make it happen. And, uh, you know, that's just, just how it is, you know. Um, and then even in the angel investing circles, I mean, this is predominantly all white, all wealthy folks it's um you know it's it's the same type of thing it's just what do you say to folks who say you know they criticize bob johnson they'll cri- they'll criticize the black business owner when they sell their company yeah. uh they're like man black folks man they sell their companies they don't keep their companies like other people man you know that's that's actually a very that's actually a very good point because if you even think about uh uh um uh, Shea Moisture, uh, I think the Rishilu, yeah. they sold. And there was a lot of people who was like, oh, man, you know. You guys selling out, sold man. Out. Keep no. it in the hood, man. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, I think I think that's because we don't know. And to be quite frank, in college, I would have said the same thing, right? I would have been like, oh, man, BT sold Keep it to, in the hood. you know, people. <laughs> no, nah, I'm being yeah. dead serious. We need black on whatever, whatever, whatever. But what you don't really realize is that. Once you build a billion dollar, first of all, if you look at BET, if we're going to take BET off, you know, you know, that was like one of the biggest black companies, you know, around back then. So there wasn't another black person that had a couple billion or whatever sold for, you know, dollars in their pocket to write the check. Right. It, did, it just didn't exist. Right. But now you've got Robert Smith, you know, who's got billions of dollars in a private equity fund who who might be able to take that off the table. But back then there were no other buyers. Yeah. So you were going to sell to I think who they sell to. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember who it was, but they sold to some media network. And so because they're the ones that had the money. But now. But now these exits allow people to uh, black people to be able to do things like uh, like fund other companies. Right. Philanthropy. Right. Fund nonprofits to give back, because if it's all locked up in if you've got a billion dollars, but you can't spend it. Right. Yeah. It's not like it's it's, cash. It's not liquid. Then you can't do anything with. it. Yeah. You know, so I've got two billion dollars in the bank account now. I'm not me, but, you know, I'm I'm Bob Johnson and I got two whatever they sold for. Right. I got all this liquid cash. Now I can start to do some things. Right. I can start to make the hood better if I choose to, you know. Or in the in the case of the brother who uh, purchased Essence. Yeah. uh, Who started a 50 million dollar fun for black women exactly uh that just like you need to go to the bank sometimes and get cash for certain (laughs) things an entrepreneur uh who's taking a lot of risk they don't have access to the cash of the the enterprise right uh, right and so you push the button with a buyer Mm -hmm. uh that leads to a lot of flexibility so now you have cash maybe you go invest and you take one billion and you make it fifty billion because now you have the flexibility to go Absolutely. out and do things. Absolutely. Jay Z started flying when he started pushing 
the liquidity button right. on Rockaware, right. on Rockefeller. Absolutely. He he unlocked his Absolutely. Uh, his value. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, if you look at Jay-Z, that's sort of like the blueprint, right? Like literally yeah. and figuratively, right? It's, uh, you know, you start, he started with a business that had very low capital needs, right? You know, making music, right? And then just parlayed it into bigger and better things. You know, with you selling your business, uh, in our community, we need to appreciate that part of selling a business is offsetting risk. So it seems like when people have these views like, oh, the black business should never sell to another company, that part of selling your business, what happens when the magazine magazine industry collapses? Uh, right. What happens when you lose your, your, your contracts with the government? What Absolutely. happens if a recession happens? So right. the political aspect is like, hey, always keep it uh, black, black, black. Uh, that would force the black business owner to um, to really hold all the risks. Uh, when you're running a business, things could happen. Absolutely. Where the business has to close down. Absolutely. They're smart. They're trying to adapt. But maybe someone has a bigger wallet. Maybe someone has bigger connections. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that, that's a key. That's a key. A key point. I mean, it's like one of those things. Like you want to sell at the height. Just like anything, you wanna you wanna start low and you wanna sell at the height of the market so that you can unlock the most cash. And risk is actually a really important thing, yeah. um, you know. And you can do that in other ways. You can also sell portions of the business. Um, so you might say, okay, I own a hundred percent of the company, so maybe I'll sell forty percent of the company, right? And then so now I've got this big nest egg in the bank and you know still run the company i'm still doing what i want to do um so you can kind of take money off the table that way or take risk off the table so that's also very important as well but it, but at the end of the day in my opinion companies are built to be sold right it's like or monetized, or monetized yeah. right it's like look you start a company you build value you unlock it right and then you rinse and repeat and then that's how you build wealth right um, I mean, you have some anomalies like, you know, the Zuckerbergs and, you know, the Gates and, you know, that type of thing. Ellis is, you know, at Oracle. But uh, but they they went IPO. They I would went argue IPO. that they have monetized in yeah. terms of most of the company uh, is owned shareholder wise right. uh, by Absolutely. others. So, so they have pushed the button. They pushed Absolutely. the liquidity button. Absolutely. Maybe not all of their personal yeah. stuff. Yeah, they yeah. just they sold off big chunks of it. Yeah. And so now you can go buy now Bezos can go buy the Washington Post and yeah. save uh, and save journalism. Yeah. Because we need good journalists. OK, so you, you you're you sell your business mm -hmm. uh, and you st and you become an investor. Well, uh, I started investing before. before because so now so now you start to make a little money, you're starting to you're starting to meet people and then people will say, Hey, you know, they'll offer you these deals. Like, hey, there's this company that I'm talking to, they're doing X, Y, and Z, you know, they're trying to raise around. Would you be interested? Yada, yada, yada. And so you say, Okay, all right, I'll take a look. And then you start to get introduced to people who are now sort of in angel groups. And you're like, okay, and you get invited to the meeting and you show up, you know, I'm Stanley at this point while walking into the meeting. And, uh, and then you're like, hey, okay, this is all right. And you start meeting people. And then one of the things that I want, that I always do is I try to add value in whatever group that I'm in, I try to add value. Um, so I was like, hey, I'm really good at technology. So you start angel investing. Did you get scammed in, in a deal? Where someone nah, misrepresented something nah, or something. No, I'm a due diligence fiend, man. Okay, I, that's uh, interesting because yeah. essentially with angel investing, that's one of the, I believe, misappreciated uh, risk 
is that a venture capital firm, they have the due diligence platform and resources to do extremely well at due diligence. Uh, they may miss some things, but they have the due diligence platform where if I'm investing as an individual, right, uh, uh, that becomes a problem in terms of scaling that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about, you, do you have any advice in terms of, hey, if you want to get into angel investing, mm-hmm. you know, how should you think about due diligence and making sure that uh, you're not hustled out of your money? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So the first thing is you got to you got to join groups. Right. So if you're going to invest, it's always best to join an investment group. In this case, if you're investing in startups or private deals, they typically call that an angel group. And so that's, you know, for example, uh, New Dominion Angels is about 60 or 70 uh, accredited investors um, who all come together. We meet every month and we look at a couple of deals a month together. Um, and then we all decide, you know, okay, we, do we like this company well enough or enough to go into due diligence? Because so you're it's not going in like, process. hey, I'm smarter than everybody else. I'm going to do nah, my own thing. Nah, you you're saying like, I got to roll with other folks who are smarter than me with more resources Absolutely. Uh, to de-risk my investment. You, I'm not partying with my capital until this stuff is checked out properly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I've actually been saved a whole bunch of times from just, you know, like getting over exuberant about a particular company. I'm like, oh, man, this company's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And then when you bring it to the group, it's like, you know, people start to point things out that are like, oh, man, I didn't really think about that. And it's actually saved me. I mean, the companies have gone to zero um, because of forces that I didn't necessarily see um, or I couldn't see because I just don't know, right? Um, in the group, we've got doctors, lawyers, we've got financiers, we've got we've got the whole range of folks. And if you're in that room, you're gonna be you're gonna be good at something, right? Like whatever that thing is that got you into the room, that got you to become a credit investor or whatever it is, you're gonna be good at that thing. And then most people bring that 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 talent to bear for the group. So, for instance, you know, there's myself and a couple of other folks. We are just, we we understand technology. We we know how it works. So if you're an AI company, you come to us. Then I'm gonna grill you about you know okay, well how are you setting up the models? You know yada yada yada. And whereas you know my colleague who's the lawyer might not ne- I mean he would he would have no clue what questions to even start to ask, right? But from a regulatory framework, if you're trying to do something like like bird scooters or whatever, there are folks in the room that will know exactly what questions to ask to make sure that you know, this company is, is doing what they need to, to do. So, um, so yeah, we've been, we've been fortunate that, you know, the power of due diligence, I learned that very early in my angel investing career, which started probably about six or seven years ago, that it's, uh, you know, you've got to do the due diligence. And when I do solo deals, um, I, I, I run through the whole due diligence. Um, I even teach due diligence, um, to, uh, other angel groups and, uh, colleges and, and entrepreneurs and, and things like that. So, Okay, interesting. Um, uh, and so, where can our audience uh, connect with you? Let's say, hey, I want to learn more about due diligence. You teach it. Sure. How can we connect? Uh, just uh, send an email to pitch, P I T C H, at S3 Angels, S as in score, three as in the number three, and then angels.org. Okay, so you go from uh, angel investing uh, to launching score three. Uh, c- can you talk about that transition where, hey, uh, it's time to scale this up a bit. Yeah. So, so remember we talked about, um, you know, I was selling the company. I was looking at like, okay, I'm 40. What do I want to do with my life? How do I want to make the world a better place? Right. So before I sold the company, 
uh, came up with this concept of, 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 of score3.org, right? I was like, okay, I'm going to create a nonprofit foundation that's going to do something. When I was, so four years ago, we didn't really know what that something was going to be. But score three, the, the genesis of it is if you think about your life in scores, so like 20 years. So one score is 20 years, and you start to say, okay, in the first score of my life, in the first score of my life, um, I'm growing up. You know, I'm just born. I'm becoming an adolescent. I'm going to college. I'm becoming an adult, if you will. The second score of your life is all about it's your profession. It's your professional life. Um, you know, I'm hustling. I might be having kids, and I'm trying to build uh, a, a sort of a. I'm trying to build a set of achievements, right? And then when I think about you know score three, and then I was like, okay, well. My dad got exactly three scores. Obviously, I want more. But I was like, okay, so so in this third score of life, you know, if you haven't already, you should really start focusing on giving back, right? And 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 making the world better with whatever resources or whatever means you've been able to to uh, to 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 amass um, during scores one and two, right? And if you're lucky enough to get a score four, then God bless you. But I was like, okay. I want to do something. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I know that I have an absolute love for, for helping founders for, and I got really good at, um, I got really good at when just you say the, helping founders. Though, are you, you're talking with the emphasis on black founders, black, brown and uh, black, brown and women. Okay. So it, it's under, you it's don't prioritize, you wouldn't prioritize black founders in that. Nah, nah, but I mean, I'm black. So, Black people tend to gravitate to me, you know, just like if I were a woman then women would tend to gravitate to you. But uh, but in general, I'm about all people that are underrepresented. Right. So, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like. We all have our we all have our institutional bags or institutional sort of oppressions to 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 work through. Right. Whether you're a woman, whether you're black, whether you're black and a woman. Right. I actually, to be honest, I actually. If I had to think about it, I actually do I actually do have a stronger bias towards helping black women founders. Okay. Um I if I had to pick if I had to be really real about my biases, um I would say it would it would probably land there. Yeah, so when you say that you want to help disadvantaged groups, you could live and be comfortable with your group, let's say if the data showed that you guys invested in 50% white women. Could you live with that? Nah, because that that's not how it breaks down. But I'm saying if, if, if the, you know, based on the deal flow and what looks good, that, nah, that sounds that, like a stretch. Yeah, no, nah, yeah. I would probably say it would probably, and I, and I actually did write this down. <laughs> um, and so I might, I might have the numbers off a little bit, but if it were, 20 to 25 percent white women if it were 20 to 25 percent black women maybe a little more maybe 40 percent black women uh you know brown latino women because you gotta can't forget about the 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 latin community um and so a good mix across all of them right so so I think if we ended up with you know 50 percent white women I think we probably didn't look hard enough for deals in the other in the other areas, and I'd probably over-index on uh, on on black women um, okay, from a score three perspective. Yeah. But from a personal Rashad investment perspective, I invest in everyone. I just want to make money. What do you say to 
some brothers who have shared with me that when folks are creating these funds specifically for black women, mm -hmm. uh, that the black pot for both genders is so small, so mm -hmm. subscale. Right. It's silly to start dividing pots specifically for a black woman. Black yeah, women. yeah, that's uh, so. So yeah, you know, it's if, if a brother said that and like, hey, you're dividing the community. The pot is not even big enough. Why are you guys already dividing pots and excluding black men? Yeah, that's nuanced. Um, so if you look at it at a very high level, um, if you any black and brown fund is going to be so small that it's in the grand scheme of the billions that are invested. Um, probably won't make a dent in moving the numbers right as far as like the representation right um ideally what we want to do is we want to make sure that the people who are writing the checks at all of these funds start to look more like the rest of america right and i think that's how we solve the problem but uh but no i think you have to have I think if a fund manager wants to create a black and brown fund or a black woman fund or a, Latin, a, a Latinx fund or what have you, then I say they should go do that because there's also there's also an arbitrage there that people are playing as well, right? Because if through institutional racism and you know biases, et cetera, et cetera, the mainstream funds and fund managers are overlooking this awesome pot of 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 awesome entrepreneurs then you could make a you could make a rational economic case that by investing in all black women you're going to get lower valuations which you will because it's just it just is what it is because there's not going to be many comp there's not going to be much competition for the deal because of all the institutional racism um and but what we have found is that you know if you look at like even companies that aren't techie like Shea Butter and some of these others, BET, they get valued on exit just like everyone else because they're starting to use real metrics and real numbers, right? Yeah. So the valuations are low and you give them a chance. And anytime we've, get, anytime we've been given a chance, right? Anytime black people, brown people have been given a chance and the rules were all the same, uh, we, we excel, right? Just like everyone else, right? Like period. I mean, it's just... You know, all we look for is a chance. So if this fund gives, you know, call it 60 black women uh, a start, because at the end of the day, the black and brown funds that are being created. You're still going to need capital from the majority funds to get to exit velocity. Right. So you might get a million. Um, you might do a million dollars for on a seed or an A round from a black and brown fund. But that B round and that C round you've got to go to the regular gatekeepers of, uh, of capital. And so you'll have to perform there as well. So, um, so yeah, so it's complicated. It's nuanced. I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an argument that can be made for it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not enough. And to be quite frank, um, you know, I watched Arlen, uh, Arlen, uh, Hamilton, you know, raise, raise her fund. Uh, and I saw what it took to raise the, her first couple of black and brown funds, and and it was tough. And, you know, she's got some of the best VCs in, in the business in her fund. And it was a very small fund. So I just don't think there's a lot of appetite from wealthy people to invest in a black and brown fund. But, uh, you know, 
hopefully that'll change in the future. Give us uh, a few names of some startups that uh, you have invested in through your network or yourself. Sure. Um, uh, what have been some success stories? Um, let's see. So I'm still a little early. So uh, I'd, I'd wish I could say that I've got a uh, a Facebook or you know or at least a big on paper, It's moving up. Uh, yeah. On paper, a couple of ones, um, and I'll be kind of uh, so Marsreal is doing well. Um, so Marsreal is sort of the ESPN for millennials. Um, you know, I've got some. They're doing really well. Shout uh, out revenues. to the brothers from uh, Mars Real. Uh, great to see you guys uh, moving the needle. Absolutely. Uh, Brandon and uh, Bradley are doing awesome things. Uh, you know, co-invested with uh, like LeBron James and a bunch of other folks. Uh, Nas, uh, you know, just, just tons of people. Uh, in the Mars Real cap in the Mar On the Mars Real cap table that uh, are going to be very instrumental in pushing them forward, right? Yeah. Um, let's see. So I really like, uh, my, my, uh, my long-term favorite is, uh, pay your tuition. Um, Stacy, uh, is a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal entrepreneur. Um, let's see. So Mars real, and then also, uh, street shares, street shares is a online lending platform. I think they're doing, uh, um, they've raised a significant amount of money. Um, you know, after we invested, um, I led the due diligence, uh, through the new Dominion Angels in one of the earlier rounds um, when we were really focused on fintech. Um, that's a majority company. Uh, Mark uh, Rockefeller and uh, Mickey Conson are the uh, CEO and uh, CEO of that company. Um, let's see. Yeah, I, I would say those are sort of the sort of the, the top ones. Uh, I'm also putting, uh, I've also invested in a, a, a company called Fudini, which I really like. Uh, you know, shout out to Phil, Phil Vang of uh from uh, met him at halcyon house and so what fudini is it's it's in my opinion it's going to be the largest restaurant in america um in probably the next six or seven years right yeah. and we're going to leverage and we're leveraging last mile delivery companies like uber eats and doordash and centralized kitchens and so forth and so on and and more to come um yeah i don't want to talk out of turn but more to come you'll you'll be seeing and hearing a lot about foodini over the next year or so one uh underappreciated area of um angel investing uh that uh, brother rashad is leading the charge on uh is for the investor you're getting a non-correlated return uh or a return that's not as much correlated with what the stock market does, what the real estate market does, what the bond market does. Uh, and so uh, it adds diversification value uh, to your your wealth creation uh, portfolio. And, uh, you know, to Rashad's point, uh, you just got to, you know, start the game with a group and learn uh, and uh, uh, make sure you get your due diligence right because there's a lot of scammers out there. So the entrepreneurs who pitch to you, and you, I'm sure you've seen uh, quite a few deals. What are some bad things that you've seen that kind of, it's a, it's a pattern where, hey, I see quite a few people who get this wrong when they step to me. A lot of them don't know their numbers. Uh, when you say don't know their numbers, you're talking about industry, forecast. What are you talking about? I'm talking, about, I'm talking about all of the above. Okay. It's like they, I guess not knowing your numbers is a is a, another way of saying they don't really understand how their business works, right, economically. Um, they haven't thought about it enough. Exactly. They haven't not, put in. Not at the level where, 
Rashad is going to part with his money. You can't spend or five hundred. Yeah. Or just anyone will part with yeah. their money, right? You know, a bank or you know, well, I mean, your sister. In a, <laughs> in a bubble market, uh, yeah, I would argue people do part with their money when you're in, uh, at, you know, you're you're at the end of the economic cycle, right before the fall that uh, due diligence starts to collapse, as we saw in the mortgage market. Fair we point. saw that fair back point. in the two thousand yep. market. So no, uh, fair there are point. people crypto people are parting with their money. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Fair okay, point. Fair point. Uh, rational, same people. I don't know, but yeah, you're right. Um, they just they just really don't think through how their pro or how their company works economically. So when you actually start, when they try to explain it to you, they they step through it. It's like okay, well, how do you do this and how do you do this? And they make just weird assumptions um, about all manner of things right and um i would say just have a good sober understanding of how you make money right would be one of the one of the biggest ones um some of the other ones um i mean all right so if i'm gonna be candid it's like some of them just aren't that good as far as like you know the talent um it's i think sometimes when you say not good are you measuring by kind of knowledge intelligence or like how are you measuring whether they're good or not all as right an investor? so um all right so from an investor standpoint it's like okay how do i know if someone's good and that's a tough question to answer right but if you just either they're not ready for what they're trying to do right meaning they haven't put in the work to get good at something or get talented enough at something such that they could potentially build a team um, because remember, teams win, yeah. right? Talented teams win, hands down, right? You remember, you know, you talk about you got the A team with a B product is going to mop up uh, a B team with an A product every day, right? And uh, and so we're trying to find the teams that are going to win, and so you got to find the ones with the most talent, right? Okay, so, so, so if you're kind of a, a GM for the, the Bears or the Redskins, you're just saying, hey, uh, the talent a lot of times that steps – uh, when I start digging in, it's just not up where I'm going to put this person in as my wide receiver or quarterback. That's a good analogy. That's a very good analogy. It's like it's like there's only so many people that can play in the NBA, right? Um, and there's so many there's only so many people who have actually put in the work to get to that level. I mean, obviously on the periphery there are people who you know just barely didn't make the cutoff to make the NBA, but they're still good football players or or, or basketball players, right? It's it's almost the same thing. It's like the same type of work ethic that you need to become an NBA or 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 an NFL, you know, player is the same kind of work ethic you need to become, you know, a a high flying startup, you know, CEO or CFO or CTO, right? Is that is that work ethic? And we just don't we and it, it happens across, you know, no matter what race. It's just that we just we need to get better. We're not on average. So I'm going to be very clear. It's like, there are awesome African-American business people, talent, there's talent out there that just isn't being rewarded and being recognized. And that's why you have some of the black and brown funds and some of these other things. Yeah. Right. But if I said, if I took a hundred, if I just took a hundred folks and a hundred random folks, what I, what I am personally saying is that, the african-americans we just need more we tend to be not as far along professionally and or 
experience me, wise in terms of knowledge wise, of the game and that and that's for a yeah. lot of reasons because i don't want the whole audience to get upset at me that's for a lot of yeah, reasons that we have go hard or go home man we right, gotta keep right. it real you oh know? absolutely you know well, and it's for a lot of reasons where they may absolutely and yeah. so the, a lot of a lot of those reasons have, are, are out of our control but i think the response to that is inside of our control right so if you come to me and you've not done anything of if you haven't done anything of note such that you can make me believe that another person, right, will want to join you in this quest, right? Because if you think about it, remember, teams win. And there's also another principle that I truly believe in. Um, it's a leader will only follow a stronger leader, yeah. right? It's John Maxwell, um, 21 laws of uh, irrefutable laws of leadership, right? Uh, I find that to be true. Um, and so if you're going to build an A team, you've got to be an A person, Right. And you've got to go out and you've got to put the 10,000 hours in or the 20,000 hours in. You've got to study. You've got to become good at your craft at something so that a group of people who are also super talented and super driven will want to come follow you. Right. Uh, when black entrepreneurs uh, come to you, um, do you get some kind of complacency or an expectation where, hey, he's black, I'm getting extra points? Uh, kind of, do you see that type of element creeping in? Not really. Not really. Not really. And then I'd have you? Really. Uh, they, they, one they, sister. One sister shared with me that uh, she pitched to someone, uh, and she thought the white guy was asking too many questions, you know, and she was uh, offended, and she thought it was racist for him to be digging in so much into her story so he was pitching she was pitching and she was pitching to him yeah 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 and, so and she was like like she hey, was upset you know, that he was asking he was asking questions. so many questions possibly digging into some of the numbers that you're digging into but kind of you know from my perspective uh generally in general in a broad sense uh white folks are racist okay that's my personal uh well view. Yeah, I mean, oh, God, I'm, I'm not. I'm not putting on you. I'm systems. saying this is me. Yeah, systems. But so if you know, if I'm looking at this situation, uh, I do have to recognize that part of this uh, it's related to legacy, not necessarily what people are doing now, but what has happened before. And so when we enter new markets that are foreign to us in terms of uh, venture capital investing, angel investing. We come without a lot of knowledge. We think we, we, we read a couple of articles online and, uh, you know, we think everybody's uh, racist, uh, but we don't have a complete set of information. Let right. me give you an example. Absolutely. So, so founders, they may get a rejection, a couple of rejections, and they may say, man, these founders uh, are, have a bias, women, uh, race. However... You know, I have met founders, uh, white founders, where, you know, they, they share with me uh, that I was rejected 70 times. Mm -hmm. I went to go pitch 100 times. Absolutely. Uh, That's the that, norm. That's the that, norm. That, and so when we go out, some of us may not even have a reference of, hey, the, the white folks who are getting funding, they may get rejected 80% of the time, meaning that you're making all these assumptions and ac accusations. Agreed. Agreed. But you don't know what's market. You don't even know right. where the market is averaging out on some of Absolutely. these things. And so, um, yeah, I just want to, to share that. Yeah, no, no, that's uh, it's very key. Um, and and 
it's very interesting, particularly once you start talking about valuation. Um, so as an investor, I see all the deals that come through, right? So I see hundreds and hundreds of deals, um, you know, a quarter or so, right? And it's like, so there's a value, there's a pitch and there's a valuation, right? And, and I, I have this larger perspective of, okay, you have to do this. I know what market is, you know, like most investors will know what's the market, right? Like, what should I expect from my valuation, right? Entrepreneurs, they only know theirs, or maybe they know some of their friends, or they hear anecdotes about, hey, you know, Bobby, he just raised 20 million, you know, yada, yada, so forth. And he only had this, these numbers, this number, this amount of revenue, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you're right. I mean, I think one of the things that I try to do is provide a broader perspective to the entrepreneurs about, okay, where they are in the market, right? So for instance, if I'm talking to black, brown or, or white founder, right? And they're like, hey, I want a $10 million valuation and I've got, you know, $200,000 worth of revenue, then I'll just say, hey, I'll usually sit down with them, especially if I'm, you know, if I'm trying to make a deal, I'll sit down with them and I'll say, hey, look, I've got seven deals over here that we're getting ready to fund at, you know, at let's say New Dominion Angels, and they're all at $1 million worth of revenue and they're at four, four and a half million dollar valuations, right? So like, whereas I, whereas you might want that and you might hear about the one company that- I read it on TechCrunch. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. that got that deal. Why can't I? Yeah, that's, you know, why? that's not Why, because I'm black. Sometimes people will think that. Yeah. And that's, and that's why it's like, you know, because they don't have that, that, that complete set of information, it's easy to sort of really slip into uh, the man, you know, and, you know what I mean? And like, oh, I'm not getting the deal I want because of the man. But if you look at it statistically, let's be let's be very clear. If you look at it across the entire economic or the entire population of black and brown deals, they are being done at lower valuations. Yeah. And this brings up something. Uh, Arlen Hamilton, uh, the founder of Backstage uh, Capital, uh, she tweeted about the other day. And what she said is like when she's talking to entrepreneurs, this is not verbatim uh, what she said, but she said that sometimes, you know, I may know more about the market or the industry than them. And that, you know, if you don't have money and you want money, motherfucker, you got to be money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't step into the game without going around four bases in terms of you know acquiring a lot of knowledge information Absolutely. knowing your numbers you don't do what you're supposed to do in terms of being money you may not mm -hmm. have money you may not come from money sure. but being money is you're gonna have to bring straight up excellence to the table you're gonna have Absolutely. to bring up a lot of discipline and investment uh to the game you got to do your part absolutely and that's yeah. what I'm, yeah. and that's what I was referring to when I said they're just not ready. Sometimes yeah. is that they just haven't put in the work. They haven't. I mean, and this is all online. You can just do this, like you can just stay you up nights and weekends. Some simple stuff is not there in, in yeah. some cases. Stumbling yeah. over simple stuff, you know. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, what what does valuation mean? It's like okay, they're asking for money, but like they don't quite understand what valuation means. You know what I mean? And so like you can literally go and there's like a thousand videos on youtube that will explain that to you right so yeah. i need you as a professional to do your homework and if you do your homework and 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 i'll take you a little rougher right i'm not gonna you know because i get it right so i'll point them out and say hey look check this out check this out check this out i'm not gonna write a check 
you know. But this is what you <laughs> need to do. I'll let them yeah. know this is what you need to do. And by the way, this is, you know, you should go talk to Melissa Bradley at Project 500 and Ade over there or go down, if you're in Atlanta, go talk to the folks down there or go see New Me or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, then come back. How many black entrepreneurs had the, maybe the, the maturity character and knowledge where you rejected them, but they still said, I want to remain a, uh, I still want to have a relationship with you. I still want to learn from you. Uh, where it's not like I'm dissed, man. You know, forget that. The vast, the vast majority of them, because it's so. So, so the majority of the entrepreneurs that you're seeing, they're leaving the rejection with a positive attitude, and they want to continue the relationship. I mean, we tried. I mean, because you never know where they're gonna go. <laughs> yeah. So it's always, uh, it's always more of a, hey, you know, not right now. Usually, I'll just. Well, I'm give talking them about their attitude, not necessarily uh, your attitude, I, you but kind of their outwardly to me. No, I haven't seen anyone get. You haven't get seen Superman. anybody, but I mean, yeah. you know, who knows what people are saying in the hallway? I mean, but I don't really. But care. they generally want to keep a relationship yeah. with you. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and it, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good strategic move anyway, right? So you pitch an investor; it's not yet, you know, they're not ready to invest now, but you just uh, you keep them on your update list. You keep showing them that you're making progress, and then at some point. You might turn that no into a yes, and that's just a good way to do it. I usually give homework. So if someone yeah. comes in, I'll say, all right, well, um, you know, if they're at $10,000 in revenue, I'll say, hey, look, I need you to be around 300000 in AR um, because that's generally where I'm able to get deals done via syndicating it with um, angel groups and, and other high net worth individuals as well, right? Like that's sort of the bar for me, but a lot of us aren't there yet. So as part of score three's mission is we want to like, we want to help get you there. Um, and we help get you there by partnering with other folks that, uh, that provide those types of services. And how do you think about early stage valuation? Uh, first, can you clarify, you know, when you like to come in? Uh, you know, I like to come in around that, that, that angel stage, that C stage. Um, You've got a product. I mean, it's just pretty straightforward. You've got a product. You've got, you know, customers. Maybe you've got, if it's. You're a, not investing in an idea. You want to see something. Yeah, yes, I want to see traction. You, I, I'm you not want to see in, something. Yeah. I'm not an idea investor unless it's me, right? Yeah. Or, or it's, or I'm like, okay, here's 20 grand. I own 30%. And we work on it together, maybe with a partner or something like that, right? Um, but no, I'm typically okay. I want to see around three hundred thousand in revenue AR. So not, it's just like if it's monthly recurring revenue or something like that, um, bare minimum. Um, I want to, or you got to have a ton of traction. Like you know, Mars Real, they were before I invested. I didn't really invest until they were at like three hundred or not three hundred or thirty million views a month, yeah. right? Like they were like they were they were killing it before I even wrote a check. And so um, so they weren't making revenue at that point. And I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like, uh, Brandon, you got to you got to you got to start making money. You got to turn the revenue on. He was like, Rashad, we're going to got to grow the scale first, yada, yada, yada. And so I I took a leap of faith that 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 was the right choice, because as a CEO, I mean, as an entrepreneur, that you got to stay on on the path that you're going. So I was like, OK, so we wrote the check and they kept doing well. And um, so you got to either have a ton of traction for me personally, or you've got to have uh, a ton of uh, or a ton of revenue. So trying to use a ton of revenue on your due diligence for Mars World, you saw traction. 
did you ask the question of, hey, how many of those views are paid for? At that point, none of marketing. Them. Oh no, no. At like, that like, point, so, yeah. but did that Absolutely. come up under due diligence? Yeah, yeah. It was all mostly. It was all organic. It was all organic. Okay, yeah, got it. Because I mean, I, I, at that point, they didn't really have a paid. They didn't have a. I mean, they'll put like a yeah. few bucks on a post, like a few, like a couple, like five, ten, six yeah. bucks on a post just to kind of get it going. But most of their stuff was the market they're going after. And I don't actually learn. I actually learn a lot from them <laughs> as far as like uh, the dynamics of of social media. Um, most it's, it's like, mostly it's like these, these 18 year old high school basketball players that, that have 40,000 followers, right. You know, and you make a video of them and you tag them, they're going to retweet it. Yeah. And boom, you're going to pick up yeah, I brought millions that up. of views just, just off the retweet of the, of the high school student. Yeah. I brought that up because a, a, a VC, uh, shared, uh, a company he was looking at, uh, and he wanted me to analyze their traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I looked at the deck and what I thought at the time was like, hey, you gotta be careful where it looks like on the, the traffic trajectory that somebody may have been spending some money right before the raise. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, he ended up investing uh, uh, after that, but then there were some allegations that uh, they misled the investors on the traffic. After, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you gotta you gotta think about. It. I mean, yeah. you also see. So at the point we are, or, or where I look for, I was like, look, if you spend if you spend a hundred grand on marketing and you drive, and I look and it drives three hundred grand worth of revenue, then I'm like, okay, let's spend six hundred grand. Is, so you got to look at both sides. Is, is that part of your your standard due diligence? Where like, hey. I see these sales, I see the revenue, I see the traffic, but how much are you paying for that? Is, a, is that a, a critical, bit of it yeah, yeah. Um, in the group? Yeah. There's always someone that'll that'll uh, dig into that. Um, yeah. Typically, typically most of the deals at the seed stage, they're raising money so that they can try to do some of that stuff, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like they'll be they'll be spending. The biggest issue with the seed stage metrics are. They'll say we can raise or we can acquire customers at a dollar a customer, right? And that means, you know, what that really means is they spend a hundred dollars on Facebook ads, and maybe they got a hundred leads, or maybe they actually got a hundred sales, but they didn't include the labor to create the, you know, to like yeah. create the Facebook ad and you know all the things that you have to do up to that point, right? And then it's only a hundred people; it's only a hundred dollars worth of spend. So does that scale, right? So those are a lot of the issues that that we're kind of dealing with at that at that C stage, right? It's not a machine; it's not a money making machine yet. Whereas in the A round, it's like, look, if we spend a, if we spend a hundred thousand dollars, we're going to make four hundred thousand dollars. So give us five million dollars, so we can make uh, you know twenty million dollars. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah. So that's so those specific type of examples, we generally don't get into those uh, just right away, but to your overall point of just making sure that uh, you aren't fooled by vanity metrics, right, is uh, something we really have to have to pay attention to. All right. I want to thank Rashad Moore for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Let's go.